if nothing else, just saying, I remember your baby. The guilt and the self-blame uh, and the regrets after a stillbirth are soul-shredding. I got to the point, like, am I insane? Am I the only one who thinks this happened right now? Did, did I not lose my son? Mm. Is this not devastating? And it's like I started to question my own sanity. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Stillbirth is defined as the loss of a baby between 20 weeks gestation and birth. Globally, one in 160 expecting families experience stillbirth, and that incidence is even greater in the U.S. If this number is surprising, that's because stillbirth isn't really talked about. But the effect of the silence is isolation. While society is well-meaning, we're often ill-prepared to truly understand the emotions felt by these parents, especially the mothers, who tend to have their own unique set of emotions beyond grief. What does she most need from us? What comments are helpful and which are hurtful? When, if ever, should you presume it's time to stop asking her how she's doing, to stop mentioning her baby? Our own nervousness and lack of understanding can misreflect the compassion we feel. In today's roundtable, Samantha, Laura, and Jessica are here to share their stories, starting with the births of their babies, Alana, Henry, and Teddy. If it would best serve you to skip those details, and you can jump directly to the fourth chapter marker exactly halfway through this episode. If you listen to the very end, you may be surprised to hear appreciation and inspiration make their way into these mothers' stories, not in spite of their babies, but because of them. You'll also learn that nothing is more important and meaningful to these women than telling their stories, saying their children's names, and honoring their existence. And for giving them this opportunity to be heard, we thank you for listening. The story of my daughter's stillbirth starts at her 39-week checkup. I had had a perfectly total and normal, healthy pregnancy. It was my first baby. Um, everything had gone wonderfully. And uh, this checkup was no exception. I uh, It was a Tuesday afternoon. My mom came with me. My doctor did NSTs the last four weeks of the pregnancies for everyone. NST is a non-stress test uh, where they check the baby's heartbeat. And my daughter uh, passed it with flying colors. She, I remember the doctor came in and she said, she sounds perfect, textbook. So um, then I had my internal checkup. She checked my cervix and she um, stripped my membranes because we wanted to get things going. And, um, you know, and then she measured my fundal length as she had done for every week for the last four weeks. And for some reason this time it came up a little, a little smaller than last week. And she's like, oh, that's weird. Just to be safe, let's go on the ultrasound. And we checked, called in the ultrasound, and everything looked great. So I went home feeling really great, really excited for my baby to finally come. You know, it had been a long nine months. This was the first grandchild on both sides of the family. Me and my husband and all of our parents and our brothers were just so excited uh, for her to finally be here. And I lay down for bed that night, and um, as she always was, she was uh, very active. And, um, but this time it was a little bit, it was a little bit different. I, um, I felt movements that felt like, like waves rolling downwards through my belly. And 
Um, I'd never felt anything like that before. I'm like, this must be a Braxton Hicks contraction. This must be a real one. Um, so she must be coming really soon. Um, so I was really excited about that. And I wanted my body to do what it was supposed to do. So I just um, laid there smiling. Um, and when it finally stopped, I got up and I went to the bathroom. And for the first time the entire pregnancy, I found a little bit of blood. And I thought, well, the doctor had said that I might have a little bleeding as so they stripped my membranes today. So I didn't really think twice about it. And I went to bed and I got up the next day and um, I have spent the last six years racking my brain trying to remember what happened this day, if I felt her move anything. Um, but all I remember is that I just felt a little anxious and I just was trying to keep busy and I did a lot of random stuff around the house. And then around uh, dinner time, I started feeling um, what, what were real contractions, felt like, you know, like menstrual cramps and they were getting stronger. And, um, you know, I basically labored at home through the, through the whole uh, next 24 hours because they were super irregular. They didn't feel that strong. And by the next evening, uh, it was around five, five or six o'clock and we decided to call the doctor because I knew the office would be closing soon and just give them a heads up that we might be coming in that evening or early the next morning. And um, this was the first the first time we had an indication something might be wrong. The midwife who answered said, um, how's her movement? And I said, well, you know, I'm really having trouble telling the difference between her movements and the contractions. And she's like, okay, I think, um, I think maybe you should come in now. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to want to rush it. You know, I just gotten through a 10 week Bradley method course. I'm just like, there's nothing they can do for me at the hospital if my labor's not progressed and I don't feel it's progressing yet. And, you know, and she's like, well, can you, can you at least lay on your side and, and drink some juice and, and do a kick count for me? And I said, okay. So I chugged down uh, the closest thing we had juice, strawberry lemonade, and I laid on my side. And over the next 40 minutes, I felt only four things that might have been a movement, but they were all during a contraction. And um, at that point was when I started to get worried. You know, at this point, I thought that the worst, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me was an emergency C-section. So it never once occurred to me that something could seriously, seriously be wrong with my baby at this point, um, this late in a healthy pregnancy. So we got in the car, we went over to the hospital and, um, you know, I, I walked out of the house and I remember I looking at my cat and just the look on my cat's face, it was just like he, it was just like he knew. And I burst into tears and my husband's like, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if everything's going to be fine. But it's still at this point, I thought, I thought that my worst fear, an emergency C-section was about to come true. Um, so we go over to the hospital and, um, you know, we just, we walked down the hall and, uh, and then we sat down the ultrasound machine and she pulled it up. And I, I remember looking at the screen and um, I remembered from previous ones, there's a little line at the bottom that's supposed to show the heartbeat. And, and it was just still. And I'm looking at it thinking, shouldn't that be moving? And then, and then the midwife takes my hand and she says the words I'll never forget. I'm so sorry. There's no heartbeat. And still at this point, I'm not processing. My husband just burst into tears over my shoulder. And I'll never forget the sound of his voice cracking as he said, no. And um, I looked up and the ultrasound tech was just tears streaming down her face. And, and I looked at the midwife, like thinking, it's like she read my mind. I'm thinking, why aren't they doing anything? And, and she just takes, holds my hand tighter and she says, if there was anything we could do, 
you would be on an operating table already. And from then on, I mean, it's just um, a blur. We are, my family, of course, knew that I had been in labor. You know, we had to call our parents and break the news. And I just remember my mom saying, that's impossible. That's impossible. And, you know, to our knowledge, it was, it was impossible. Um, they gave me the choice to um, either go home and wait it out since I was already in labor or to go down to labor and delivery and uh, have an induction. And, you know, I just remember thinking, let's let's just get through this. You know, it just felt like a nightmare that we just wanted to escape from. I remember the nurses, the nurses were so wonderful. They were so compassionate. They knew, um, they knew the right things for us to do, but it was so hard for us to, to process what they were saying. And they said, you're going to want to take pictures. Um, you know, and, and we were like, no, no, there's no way. So we, we sent home, we had a whole backpack full of clothes for her and our cameras and we sent everything home. Um, you know, they said, just get a little bit of rest. It'll probably be about 12 hours. But about four hours later, you know, we didn't really sleep much, but, you know, we turned off the lights and tried to rest. About four hours later, um, the I woke up from a short nap and I was in transition. And um, I remember um, my mom had, my mom was there. My parents had come to the hospital at this point. And I remember saying to her, you know, at one point the, the midwife and the nurse walked away and I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, are they going to expect me to hold her? And my mom, thank God, said, yes, you want to hold her. You know, at this point in my life, I had counted the number of times on one hand that I had even seen a dead body. And now I was going to be giving birth to one, to the one of the person I love most in the entire world. And I didn't know what to expect. I was just um, horrified. My husband was, my husband realized that I would have to actually give birth to our baby still. He was just absolutely um appalled and um I'm just so grateful that my mother was there to guide me because she came out and she was just beautiful she was um she just was warm and glowing and she looked like she was sleeping and um there was nothing visibly wrong that we could see with her just she just wasn't breathing so I held her for about an hour um you know, my, my, my husband and my mom took a, took a turn holding her and, um, and then we said goodbye. And I'm so grateful that the nurses, uh, took photos of her because we had a couple grainy cell phone photos, you know, this was 2013. So, uh, they, we did not have, you know, the, the megapixels on our cameras back then that we do now over the next couple of days, you know, we had the awake and a, and a funeral and a burial for her. And it was just like, so surreal. And we found out later that she had, uh, we, we, she died of, um, cord compression. Uh, she had a, a short, thin, um, hypocoiled, which means that it's, uh, not as, um, spirally as it should be. That's a protective thing. Um, as we saw on my last, my last checkup that day, um, you know, it didn't show up on the NST or the ultrasound. Um, so we know now that she'd actually been bleeding out for the last week or two of my pregnancy. And, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So I had had a very normal first pregnancy with my now almost seven year old son, Oliver. And, um, we decided when he was about 18 months old that we were going to start trying again. And I remember the night we went out for drinks and decided we're going to start trying we went home and we got pregnant with him <laughs> with our second. <laughs> and um, 
Yeah, I really was, it was a very normal pregnancy. Um, I had birthed my first son at the birth center and worked with some amazing midwives and I was doing that again. And um, really there was nothing, um, nothing out of the ordinary until about 32 weeks. Um, I one day didn't feel a lot of movement and ended up going to the the emergency room and to have him checked to which I was sent home a few hours later after they were able to get him moving with, um, by drinking some apple juice. Uh, so other than, you know, a few occurrences like that, um, everything was great and normal until 38 weeks. Um, you know, just like Sam, I, uh, had a appointment at 38 weeks and, um, he checked out perfectly, uh, I remember the next day, me and my family, um, you know, my husband took our older son to the beach and I said, let's take a photo of our la- the last time we'll be a family of three and took a selfie on, at Todd's point. And uh, I, you know, was really just full of anticipation for for our baby to come very soon. My first had been, had arrived at 37 weeks and five days. So I was in my mind, like waiting, waiting, waiting. And I remember saying like, I remember being in the car and saying to my husband, like, oh, I just wish you'd come already, but but I just want to be healthy. I just want to be healthy. And so so that's really all that matters. It's really all that matters. And um, I guess from there, I just, it was kind of just a slow realizing that I wasn't feeling a lot of movement uh, the day after that. Um, I had a friend over that one morning, that morning, um, and just kind of in the back of my mind thinking like, hmm, not moving as much. I think deep in my um, subconscious knowing, you know, something wasn't totally right. Uh, And I remember being at the playground that afternoon and feeling just a really jarring kick. And that was the last movement I ever really felt. Um, Went home that night and by dinner time, I was telling my husband, I, something's, something's wrong. I, I can't feel him. I can't feel him. And so we called the midwife and she actually came to my, to our house and, out the heartbeat monitor and couldn't find a heartbeat so but she was like let's just we're gonna go to the hospital we're gonna we're gonna go you know they'll be able to hear it with it with their you know machines and got there and saw that horrible you know stillness on the monitor um and those same words there's there is no heartbeat and um we're given the choice to go home and labor naturally or to be induced and chose to be induced. So we stayed in the hospital that night. We had found out at about midnight um, and then um, was given um, a very strong drug. I can't forget that. I can't remember the name right now. Cytotec. Cytotec, yes. And uh, within about six hours, I I slept and woke up to very strong contractions and um, gave birth to, again, just the most beautiful baby boy, Henry, the next morning. Um, I'll never forget the doctor handing him to me and saying, you know, this hospital doesn't, doesn't have a lot of loss. Like we don't have, this doesn't happen here. And he said, don't try for, for six months, let your body, let your body heal. And then, and then you can try again and, and, you know, every, everything will be fine. I just remember that he didn't even acknowledge my baby um, that they had just put on me. And it just felt really, really, really insensitive. Um, 
the nurses were incredible. They took a lot of pictures and encouraged me to hold him for the whole day. Um, I remember my parents coming and seeing him and, um, My dad holding him and my dad died a year later. He just told me that he's the most beautiful baby he'd ever seen. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And we went home that night and I'll just never forget the emptiness I felt that night in bed. That the little the little boy who, who was with me for nine months was gone. And he was supposed to be in my arms, but I just had an empty womb, and uh, yeah, that was that was like the saddest I've ever felt. So Teddy was my second pregnancy. Um, my pregnancy before that um, was healthy. Grayson was born, and I had postpartum preeclampsia afterwards. So that kind of put the doctors just they put me into another category. I also had. Um, a thyroid disorder, so I was immediately kind of put with the maternal fetal medicine specialist. And when I first met with him, it was my 12-week appointment, and he just started listing all these tests that he wanted to do. Okay, fine, okay, fine, and we started doing all of them, and they were all perfect. But at that appointment, they started quizzing me, and they started asking um, about family history and all of that stuff, and as I gave him that information, he wrote me um, a, a script, and he handed it over, and he goes, take that script and when you're between 22 and 24 weeks, I want you to go have a fetal echocardiogram. And I said, why? That doesn't make sense. He goes, well, it's based on family history. I said, but I have no defects and neither does my son um, and everyone else in my family. There's two of them. I said, they had heart surgery in their 50s and 60s. I don't understand. And he said, we just want to, you know, we're just checking everything. So I still remember him handing me that paper, and I didn't want to take it from him. I just kind of stared at it. So I took it, and I put it in my purse, and I just kind of stared at it, and I avoided it, and I avoided it, and I had no desire to call, but I'm a rule follower, so I'm like, you got to call, make the appointment. So I called. I got an appointment for 23 weeks. So my intention all along was to go to the 19-week scan and, you know, ask more questions, and we went to that one, and he came in. He goes, everything looks great. I said, oh, perfect. Even the heart? He goes, yeah. I said, well, how good do you feel about that? He goes, 95%. I said, so you're certain 95%? He's like, yeah, with everything I can see. I said, well, then what's the point of the other appointment? Can't I just cancel it? And he goes, no, that other appointment's going to give you another 1% to 2%. So you should just go. And I'm like, nothing's ever 100%. I don't understand. So I went to the fetal echocardiogram by myself, not expecting anything. And he was quiet the whole time and got off the table. And he took me over to the chair and said those words like, you know, there's always those words that we never forget. And he said, okay, so there is something wrong with the baby's heart. And I was like, okay, it's going to be something simple. We're just going to watch it. It's going to fix itself. You know, a little hole in the heart or something, no big deal. And he just started going on and on, and he's using simple terms, but it's still a learning curve. And I'm like, I just, I don't understand what you're saying. This sounds horrible. Like, this isn't something we're going to fix. And I just kept looking around the room. I'm like, there must be a clown in the corner. There's something here that's going to indicate this is a dream, that this isn't really happening. 
and there was nothing. I even remember pinching myself, and I realized this this is my new reality. This is this is happening. And the only thing that I could gather was that it was progressive and there was no cure. And I got the sense from him that we might not even make it to delivery, but that he really needed to send me for a second opinion, not to get my hopes up because he really thought his diagnosis was accurate, but that he needed someone else to assess it and kind of give us a game plan and told us that he would reach out to Columbia Presbyterian and have their team contact us. And the only thing I could think while he was in that appointment was just stop talking. I need to leave. I need to leave. How am I going to tell my husband? Right? Because now I have to break the news. And I got out of the appointment. I'm like, just get to your car. Just get to your car. And I couldn't. I needed to call him immediately. But I was so panicked. I couldn't operate my phone. And then I started panicking more. And now I'm crying. And by the time I finally call him, and he answers, I'm just hysterical. He has no idea what's going on. He's asking me if I was in a car accident. And finally, he's able to just kind of figure out that there's something wrong with the baby. And he happened to be working late that night. So he just got in the vehicle and drove home. And um, 9 o'clock the next morning, Columbia called and said, can you get here by 11? I said, I don't know, but I'll, I'll, I'll be there as soon as I can. And it was just a whole day of learning about the defect and the different spectrum it could take and that it was a critical one, but we were in the moderate level and developing a game plan to monitor me every week because it can turn on a dime and, um, you know, planning to deliver down there into the NICU so that the first of the surgeries can be done and that we'd be in the NICU for a month. And so it was just immediately pivoting. You know, you're going from having a healthy baby to not having a healthy baby. What does that mean? Okay, it's not natural, you know, organic delivery anymore. It's going to be very medicalized. Baby's going to have interventions immediately, no skin to skin. They said, we'll show you your baby, and then we're leaving. Um, so it was just constant pivoting of like, okay, this is our new normal. Okay, this is how we can expect it to go. And we just started going down there every week and we started doing research and preparing for a NICU delivery and you know ways to help baby adjust and give baby the best chance of survival with reading books and you know things that smell like you and the best way to you know initiate um, lactation and breastfeeding because you weren't going to be able to do it with the baby and um, I'll never forget every time I went I always looked at the ultrasound because they take about an hour the fetal echoes and I would always look at the top of the screen where it counted your gestational, you know, weeks and days. And I was always counting to 26 weeks. And I don't know why, but I just always kept looking like, okay, I got a week till 26 days or I got a week and 10 days, whatever it was. And the week leading up to that appointment, I noticed that his kicks had changed. And I told myself, oh, my amniotic fluid probably increased. He changed position. They were at the same frequency, but they weren't strong. He had been such a strong kicker that I was like, what am I going to do at, you know, seven, eight, nine months? Like, he is so strong. And we went into that appointment, and typically I would lay on the table. The tech would do everything, and the main doctor would sit back at a screen um, in another room and review and ask for different images. And she was comparing everything to see whether or not there was progress. And we weren't there for five minutes, and this esteemed doctor from Columbia Presbyterian just comes running in the room saying, there's progress, there's progress. And she's washing her hands, 
and she pushes the other tech out of the way and she just starts scanning the heart and they're talking back and forth and they're trying to understand how much blood flow the heart's still able to generate, if it's able to pump any blood out of the chambers and just going on and on. And um, basically his heart had progressed to a point where it was just exhausted and it couldn't pump blood anymore. And so there weren't many options at that point in time. I was 26 weeks. Um, They really didn't favor an early delivery for him just because of the complications and his gestational age. So we were just kind of stuck with nature. Um, So we had, I guess we had a little preparation because it was kind of a a buildup, but you still don't expect to end up there when you're pregnant. And gave us... um, gave me some sort of pill to take orally to start inducing labor because I was so early at 26 weeks and sent me home for the next day and said, we'll see you tomorrow. So you're kind of stuck in in limbo. What what do you do? And the only thing we could come up with was to just keep busy and you just, you don't know, you don't know what to do. Um, Went to the hospital, um, and I'm, I'm walking in, and the nurses quite aren't sure why I'm there. You know, I'm 26 weeks pregnant, and I'm not in labor. And, you know, then you have to explain everything to them. And mm-hmm. finally, you're admitted, and, um, you know, things get going. And the nurses, you know, they kind of assemble a special team. And the nurses were, were really great. And they just said, you know, we don't know how long this is going to take. Um, but it's one of those things that you are, you're very fearful of because he's 26 weeks, he's not full term, what is he gonna look like? Um, and you know, again, it's, it's, it's your son, but you forget all of a sudden he just becomes a dead body. And it's like, what, what is this gonna be? And you're instantly just so fearful. And um, they asked what I wanted and I said, can you, I, I wanna hold him, I know I absolutely wanna hold him, um, but can you just wrap him up first? And you know, put, put the blankets on him because I'd given birth before, so I know it's usually skin to skin and how that process goes. And so I gave birth, and they took him, and they wrapped him up, and they sat him in the isolate kind of in the corner, and they started working on me. And I just, I thought I was going to go insane. I just, give me my baby now. Like, I realized I wanted him immediately. Like, the fear was gone. I just wanted my baby. And as soon as they handed to me, it was just such relief when I saw him. I'm like, oh, he's perfect. Perfect. I I can do this. I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep him just like this. I'm just gonna keep him like this for the rest of forever, and I will just carry around my tiny baby every everywhere I go because he's just he's perfect. And I remember feeling guilty afterwards because I was so preoccupied with him being dead and that I missed his birth because I wasn't looking at the right way. But that's something that kind of comes from society and our culture. But I'll just never forget just how how perfect he was. And I had made him um, a little crocheted octopus because it was supposed to be very soothing for babies in the NICU. So we brought that with us and gave him his little octopus. And we had all picked out books for him. I picked out one and John picked out one. And we picked out one that my son could read to him. Um, just so that he could start recognizing our voices for the NICU. Um, And so my husband, we both brought our books, and he read his book to him, and I read, you know, my book to him. Um, 
and we we only spent about three hours with him because you could see he was he was starting to change, and we just we didn't want to go there, and we knew that no matter how much time we spent with him, no matter how long we held him, it wasn't going to be enough. It just it was never going to be enough. Um, so for us, it was we said goodbye and we felt we had honored him and and we were starting to grow uncomfortable because when they're born they're they look perfect like they're sleeping but every time i kissed him before i handed him to john as we traded back and forth his body just grew colder and colder and it was just so devastating and so finally we called for the nurse and we said our last goodbyes and we watched her carry him out of the room and it really struck me because none of the nurses ever carried Grayson. They always put them in the bassinet and they wheel them because hospital policy, you can't carry the babies. And she just walked out of the hospital with my baby under her arm because she couldn't hurt him. There was nothing she could do to him. And it just struck me because I'm like, she can. she's doing that because she's not taking him to the nursery. She's taking my baby to the morgue and it was so hard to know that that's where he spent his night instead of with us and so after we let him go they switched us out of that room and as they wheeled us out I looked at the door and their symbol in that hospital for loss was um, a white ribbon and so anywhere anytime there was a lost mom that's on the door so that anyone who comes in knows um, you know, to be respectful and to tread lightly. And I just remember being rolled out and going, I was the woman behind that door. That that was me. And they wheeled us over into recovery, and um, I scooted over, and John just sat down next to me. We just laid our heads together, and we had probably the deepest sleep of our lives ever, and, you know, we didn't wake up till like, 8 a.m. the next day. And you do, you just you leave the hospital with a box instead of a baby and it's just such a crappy substitute and I remember waiting for the car to come around because we're down in the city and only valet parking was the only option and you know we were leaving with no baby we weren't putting anything in a car seat and sitting next to me is a woman in a wheelchair just staring at her brand new baby as she waits for the car to come around and it's just it's it's devastating to, to be pregnant and, and leave without a baby. You tell the story, you know, they, they wheeled you out in a wheelchair. Um, when I left the hospital uh, after my daughter's birth, I actually walked out. And I thought that was so strange because it, it never occurred to me that the reason that a mom gets pushed out in a wheelchair is because she's holding the baby. Mm. I always thought it was for the mom's benefit. And when no one brought me a wheelchair, I just, it was just, it felt like such a slight, you know? It was just like, like I didn't just give birth. Um, and to walk out of the hospital with empty arms, I had to walk past the nursery. I mean, mm. that, that was the hardest walk of my entire life. I don't know how I managed to walk out of that hospital without my baby. Um, and it was just such... It was such a traumatic experience when I was back a year later um, delivering my son, thankfully healthy, um, and the nurse came in with a wheelchair. Mm. I just broke down. She, I, 
this somehow this was the only nurse we saw the entire stay that didn't know our history. And she was like, why are you crying? Are you nervous about bringing your baby home? And I couldn't even form the words to say I'm crying because I was here a year ago delivering my daughter and no one brought me a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, crazy experience. So what next? What happens in life after this? You have to break the news to everybody. Yeah. What's that like? I couldn't even call my mother. I sent her text messages and I said, I'm sorry. This isn't something that should be told to you this way. But I, I can't say this out loud. I can't form the words. And I told her and I just said, you take care of the rest. You let everyone else know because I'm not, I'm not calling everyone else. I can't. So... I did the same. I had um, I I called a handful of close friends and I just asked them to please spread the word because I just I couldn't. I mean, everyone mm-hmm. that I knew knew that I was pregnant. I was the saying you were so close to the end. People My were going to start two inquiring. days. Yeah. She was born two days before her due date, wow. and I was getting text messages. Is that baby here mm-hmm. yet? How's the baby doing? And I just turned off my phone and I said, please handle it for me. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, my husband took care of letting everyone know. Uh, a few close friends were, um, you know, called the, the day of, and they were amazing. But, you know, you go through that first week, and it's a blur, and you have a, you do the um, sort of ceremonial thing that you do, and people come, and they show up, and it's amazing, and they definitely say some things that, you know, are you know, are not necessarily helpful. And then they say some things that are comforting, um, but it's nice to know that people are there for you and that they're acknowledging your baby. And then then the hard weeks really start where, you know, the ceremony's over and you're left to um, dealing with your grief and trauma and figuring out a new life with your husband and or spouse and your yeah, family. It's a new life and you're just like, how, how did I get here? I don't don't understand. I was pregnant. Why is there not a baby here? And your mind almost just has trouble accepting the concept to even figure anything else out. You're just so confused. Yeah. We came home from the hospital. You know, we got in the car and our car seat is empty in the rear view mirror. And, you know, we, we pulled in the house and there is a fully decorated nursery. There's a drying rack in my sunroom filled with baby clothes that I had bought last minute and needed to be hand-washed and air-dried, and I had left them there when I went to the hospital thinking a baby was coming home, and we buried her in those clothes. Yeah. Henry was born three days before Christmas, so we had to have make sure we gave our, our first son a regular Christmas. Um, but I remember the day before Christmas going to the mall walking around and I was still like so, so sore. I could barely walk, but I wanted to get out of the house. And I remember we went into Johnson and Murphy, the men's shoes. My husband wanted to look at some shoes and the woman came right up to me and my mm-hmm. son and said, are you going to have a baby brother or sister soon? And this was like a day after I lost or two days after. And then we had this, we had the um, service. And uh, after that, my husband, he's just a doer. He's like, he always, he, he always wants to find a solution. And so that was a lot of, that definitely became problematic later in the month, but I was very grateful in, in that moment that he suggested getting away and um, our friends have an apartment in Washington and we stayed in their apartment for a week. 
And I literally had like cabbage leaves on my breasts as we were like walking around and taking Oliver to muse- museums, still bleeding, um, starting to produce milk. And um, it was painful, but it was, it was, we had to remove ourselves. And, you know, I did smile for the first time again. So you have the services that you have for your baby and all these people come and all this love pours out and all these hugs and all these tears. And then everyone gets into their cars and goes home and it's just starting for you. Yeah. And then you're adjusting to your new life. So then how do people relate to you after that? And what, what was least helpful? Because everyone was well-intended, no doubt, right? Of course, of course. So what surprised you? Which people in your life, the ones mm-hmm. who came through and understood the most, were they the ones you expected? I think you hear this over and over again from people who've been in the situation. Uh, the people who are there for you are never the ones you expect them to be. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. You know, and the ones that you expect mm-hmm. to are not, <laughs> are not there. For me, it was tough because I was the first of most of my close friends to have a baby. Mm-hmm. So most of my friends didn't really relate to the experience of becoming mother at all let alone to becoming a mother to a baby who's no longer in your arms. Um, So that was really hard for people to wrap their heads around. But, um, you know, I'll never forget. I have, I have one, one friend. She's now the godmother of my son um, who called every single day for Mm -hmm. months. And most days I didn't have anything to say. I didn't even pick up the phone half the time, but she just kept calling so that I would know that she was thinking of me. I can't tell you how much that meant to me, you know, because uh, it does. The first the first few weeks, you're just, you're really just in shock. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like this could possibly be your life. And and then by the time that it starts settling in that, that yeah, this this, this happened to me. And, and this is my family now. And this shadow is going to hang over us forever. And I don't know how to deal with this. Most people have moved on. And... You know, they don't mean to, um, but it's just not their immediate reality like it is for you. And and it's so hard because everybody grieves differently. And you hear that over and over again. You know, everyone, there's no right one, one right way to grieve. And, and it's really hard, I think, from the outside to try to anticipate what the person who's grieving needs. And some people want somebody there. I mean, the thing that's really hard, even as the person who's grieving, you don't know mm-hmm. what you want or need. You know, like sometimes you feel like you just want to be alone, but then, then the thoughts are just eating away at you. And then, and then when people are around you, you just, you feel like I might as well be alone because I'm just sitting here in my head only thinking about my baby and everyone else is acting like everything is normal. Um, and and they probably think they're helping you by acting like everything's normal. Yeah. Yeah. Our loss was, was kind of early enough and, um, we ended up just kind of, we couldn't fathom any sort of a service. So we, we skipped that part. Um, so I think family kind of felt that we were being more private and that we didn't want, um, people in our space. And so I found that mostly people were thinking about us, but they were completely silent. Um, and so I actually, um, I think it was right before Easter. I called my mom just like irate. I'm like, I'm not coming to Easter because the family doesn't care and I don't want to see them. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I haven't heard. I really haven't heard from anyone. It's been like a month and I haven't heard from anyone. She's like, oh, well, everyone keeps calling me and asking me how you're doing. I'm like, that's super. (laughs) (laughs) I'm over here wondering 
have I been a crap, like, does my family not love me? Have I done something in the past to offend them that I'm not worthy of their love and support right now? Um, my friends were silent as well. And um, so I started, you know, amongst the grief and everything else that you're doing, you're starting to question, do I have friends? Did I make them mad? Have I, have I not been the friend that I thought I was? Why isn't my family here? Where is this circle that I was told was going to appear to help me through this? Because they're not here. And even when I was kind of extremely articulate with what I wanted and needed from people, they just, they weren't sure. Do they mention it? Do they not mention it? Do they ask how I'm doing? What if I'm having a good day and they ask how I'm doing, they'll upset me. And they just, their, their uncertainty results in just doing nothing. And even my husband for a little while was just kind of like taking my temperature and he's like, you seem good. And so he didn't even mention our loss or our child. And it got to the point, like, am I insane? Am I the only one who thinks this happened right now? Did, did I not lose my son? Is this not devastating? And it's like I started to question my own sanity. And, you know, I, I, I kind of yelled at John that day. And he's like, no, I just, I, I don't know what to do either. It's, it's very, very challenging because you expect the grief. I don't think you expect the isolation and the people you normally turn to for comfort suddenly felt like strangers because there was no, they couldn't relate to you on this level, which is where you needed to be right now. And Easter wasn't too long after our loss. And um, I'm from a large family. There's probably 30 people there that day. And four, four of them came up to me, hugged me and said, I'm sorry. The rest of them did not address the loss at all. Um, and many of them avoided talking to me or even saying hi because they knew, they didn't know what to do. And they're like, well, do I, if I say hi, I should probably address the loss, but I don't know if I should address the loss, so I'm just going to opt out. And people get so hung up on saying the right thing or obsessing, am I going to say the wrong thing? Be honest. I don't know what to say to you right now, but I'm just, you're heavy on my mind. It's it's that it's that simple. It's that simple. And the silence is absolutely the worst. Um, it does stink when someone says something that they shouldn't have. Um, but some of my fondest memories are I had a cousin who came up to me and was very awkward, but he's, you know, trying to say, I'm sorry for your loss and I'm here for you. And you could see how uncomfortable he was, but he still did it. And I just wanted to like grab him by the face and kiss him. Because it was just, it was so obvious that he didn't know how to do it, but he knew that he had to and he wanted to. And I still remember every person who came up to me that day and they kind of all took their turn and waited till I was like off to the side and came up and hugged me. And it, it was everything. It really was. For me, the most helpful thing was always just people mentioning him. Mm -hmm. telling me, I'm thinking of you and Henry. You know, Those were the you know, best. Just a text, I'm thinking of you today and yeah. Teddy. And it was yeah. like, that was all you needed. Yeah. People don't realize, you know, when you're grieving the loss of someone, uh, the acknowledgement of that person and the acknowledgement that you're thinking of them means so, so, so much. If nothing else, just saying, I'm thinking of your baby. I remember your baby. And I feel like people do that if, an elderly mother passes away or an aunt. They're like, oh, you know, I remembered your aunt or 
they say something, but suddenly those kind of social norms disappear when it's a baby or it's someone who kind of in their mind didn't exist. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden it's just absolute paralysis. There were quite a few comments that were not helpful in those early days. Um, Don't worry, you'll have another one. It, It was meant to be. He's he's in God's hands now, and if if he didn't survive, then he probably something probably would have been wrong with him if he was born. Oh, that was the worst. And the older generation, like my, even my own grandmother, said, you know, just forget about the baby, just move forward. And I know that that's what they were told to to say yeah. to do, and and it it, it pains my heart. Probably the most hurtful thing that people said to me was just um, speculating on what I did wrong. Mm. In like a roundabout way. Yes. Well, do you think you... Yeah, or maybe you shouldn't have eaten this. Uh, Well, you know, a really... A healthy baby doesn't just die at the end of a pregnancy like that. Like there must have been something wrong. You know, things like that, that um, as if I didn't have enough of these thoughts running around Mm -hmm. my head already. Constantly. I mean, the, the guilt... And the self-blame uh, and the regrets after a stillbirth are soul-shredding. You cannot, your, your, your mind becomes the absolute worst place in the world to be. And the fact that any person could think that it was okay to add to that was just absolutely baffling to me. I think because people are so scared. They like they want to know yeah. it must have been your fault. You must have done something wrong because then this can't I couldn't also happen. be a candidate for this. Like Well, exactly. like there must be a reason for it because yes. it's too painful to imagine it happened for no reason. Yeah. But right. so they're trying to protect themselves so, yeah, and what at the they do. Of you. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and people it, always want to try to find something to blame something mm-hmm. bad. Yeah. That happened on something else. So the universe feels mm-hmm. fair. I think right. that's yeah. part of it. With all these comments people are making, what are people not getting? I think this guilt thing is is a big part of it that people don't get. You know, I there's this there's this book that was a lifeline for me, and that I always gift to other lost moms now when they're um, on that journey the first year uh, called "You Are the Mother of All Mothers," mm-hmm. um, and it's. Short. It's basically like a coffee table book with beautiful um, artwork in it. And it basically says, you did not cause this. You are not to blame. If there was anything at all that you could have done to save your baby, you would have done it. Um, and so many people don't understand that lost moms need to hear that. Pretty much universal. I've never met another lost mom who didn't have four pages of things that she may have done wrong to cause her baby's death. Mm-hmm. Right? This is what we do as mothers. We're responsible for our children. Um, so of course, when the baby dies in your body, in the one mm-hmm. place you thought that he or she was safe, you're and when going, you're the only caretaker, you're at that the point only time. caretaker, exactly. Um, and I just remember, so I got, I had this book and you know, I, there's always copies of it floating around my house. And I remember my mom picked it up one day and she was reading it and she was just like, but you don't feel this way. <sighs> and I was just like, you don't think I feel this way? I'm just like, you, you were, you were. Besides my husband, the closest person to me and to this baby, you were the person who feels the grief, you know, almost as strongly as I do. And you don't understand that I, that I feel, how could you not understand that I feel this because way? Because she felt the grief and not the guilt. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it's just, uh, it is, it is such a, 
such a hard thing to deal with. And, you know, for me, the thing that really helped, and it took a long time, um, you know, I, I got involved in the lost community. I'm, um, I'm a volunteer with the Star Legacy Foundation. And um, through, that, through that work, I have met hundreds, if not thousands, of other lost moms. And in listening to them all tell their stories over and over again, stories which sound just like mine, and where they walked away making the same conclusion, I must have done something wrong to cause my baby's death, it finally clicked that this was not the failing of any one individual mother, that this is, this is a, a societal level failing, there's something going on with our medical system, you know, there is um, a, lot of, a lot of things conspiring to cause these babies to die, and not one of those reasons is their mother's. But it really took years of hearing those stories over and over again to to believe it when it came to myself. I remember feeling like a failure because I didn't create a healthy baby. And um, I felt like I failed um, everyone around me because I was pregnant and I promised people grandbabies and I promised them nephews and I promised them nieces and I promised them, you know, a son and a sibling and I didn't deliver. I couldn't produce a healthy baby. And I remember the guilt of that. And I remember in one of my, you know, more difficult emotions, moments when the emotions were just too much, telling my husband that he should divorce me so that he could go find someone who could give him a healthy baby because I couldn't. And he just said, no, I don't, I don't want that. I'd rather have you. Um, and so... Um, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but the anxiety that happens afterwards, um, I started to fear that I was going to lose him next because you start fearing that you're going to lose everyone because death is real and it's everywhere now. Just the, the ripple effect, it's, it's so much bigger than, you know, my child died. It's just yeah. the roots go so much deeper. I uh, suffered severe post-traumatic stress and was in the hospital no less than 10 times at the, in the ER, convinced that I was dying of a blood clot in my lungs. Like, I convinced myself that that was what had killed my baby and that I had a blood clot and that I was going to die. And uh, my poor, poor husband, I would call him in a panic that I couldn't breathe. And I, I was taking care of our two-year-old. Uh, he was beside himself of how to help me. And, um, yeah, it was a really dark time. Let's get into how this experience was different for you and your husbands, what you learned. Well, that and also how society treated them versus how they treated us. People had no problem going up to him and asking him, how are you and how is your wife? But no one would ask me. They'd, you know, text behind my back or go ask him, how's Jessica? Like, I just, I was so frail and so fragile that you couldn't even ask me how I was. And I found that really, really upsetting. Um, it's like they treated him like the gatekeeper to yeah, you. Yeah, like I was just too, too almost pathetic and weak to even handle how are you. Um, but he somehow was not affected by this like I was. Um, so I was actually frustrated by that. And I was also frustrated because I'm like, don't you care about him as well? And I also felt like all eyes were on me and not him. Like, okay, her baby died. What's going on with her? Does she look thin? Does she look like she's eating? Is she pale? Um, Does she look like she needs extra help? And I just felt like there was always that pressure and that pressure to heal and that pressure to get better because 
I was the one that needed to have the baby again. And he was just kind of like free to experience his, his grief and take his journey without all of these people just kind of staring him down and wondering if he was doing it the right way or not. And I think a lot of times, unfortunately, um, you know, the partners get forgotten in this. You mm-hmm. know, people do treat them as, as the gatekeeper and they come and they say, how is your wife? But yeah. no one ever asked him how he's doing. Like, it wasn't your baby too. Everyone treats you like it wasn't your baby That's too. That's what it was, yeah. Yeah. So for my husband, uh, he very much went into, like, fix fix everything mode, uh, pr- protector mode, take care of everything mode and Mm -hmm. I think almost out of like self-preservation he went back to work pretty fast I'd say like three weeks afterwards uh and I think that was his way of doing something and taking care of us all uh but he very much like you're saying like compartmentalized um the loss because he didn't have anywhere to go he didn't have anyone to talk to and uh he um very much kind of figured out his own way through and, you know, I'm, I'm really, really, really proud of him. Five years, five years down the road. I mean, he, um, we started a nonprofit, which we ran for a little while and he ran, um, a number of like amazing ultra marathons to raise money for stillbirth and to honor our son. And so he, he found his, his way, but I just remember in those first few months, just a lot of not understanding each other and um, just just feeling so misunderstood by him. And I know he felt misunderstood by me. And one thing that helped so much was finding this article online somewhere um, about, uh, I think it was a blogger, but she was talking about how her and her husband had experienced a lot of loss. And the thing that they had realized and that had helped them through it was that they found support in places other than through just between themselves, other than just supporting each other. Like that's important, but it's also so important to seek support outside of each other, outside of the relationship. And um, that was kind of a catalyst for me to seek the lost community and support from other women. And that helped me so much. What we found, and I think this is true for a lot of people, is that uh, we were never on the same page. Like the days that I was having a really hard day he'd be feeling pretty good. And then he would come home and then there I was in a puddle on the floor having just, you know, been reading lost blogs for the last four hours straight and sobbing. Um, And then I would have a a rare day where I I wasn't crying and he would just, you know, just want to stare at the TV and and try to escape our life. And um, it was just really tough because we were never on the same page. And, you know, we we were... lucky, I guess, at this point that we didn't have any other kids. So it was really just us that we needed to to worry about. I can't even imagine um, having an older child, how you guys managed to balance all that. Um, did it help? I, I think it did. I mean, I, I look at it as I was blessed to have him. So I, it's, I think either way is, is so hard. Mm-hmm. And um, But for me, it was a good distraction. Mm-hmm. And I needed him. I mean, I remember those mm-hmm. those weeks where I was like, severely traumatized and going to the hospital, my husband was like, we should get help. Let's get you an Annie. I was like, I need him. Like, I need him. He's He is everything to me, and I can't have anyone else, like, watching him right now. So, yeah, no, I um, – it was helpful, but it was hard having to not, not be able to just 
be in that puddle sometimes. Yeah, for me, it was kind of a double-edged sword. Like, it was was so thankful to have somewhere to pour that love because that process happened in your body. You gave birth, everything triggered. So you want, like, that that instinct is just there to, like, pat a baby or hold them. And being able to just sit on the couch and cuddle with him and watch a movie was everything. But after that, I wasn't able to parent. I wasn't able to make him food. I didn't want to play with him. I didn't want to engage with him. It was just too much for me on that level. And so, again, those feelings in the back and you feel like you're failing the one child that you were actually given. Um, You know, you failed the first one because they didn't make it. And now you're failing the one that you actually do have because to some extent you're just unable, at least for me, to to function. Did you feel pressure by people to heal in a certain amount of time? Did you feel pressure from society or from your family or from your friends that you should be you should be over this by now? You should be back to motherly duties or did you feel supported all I the didn't way through? necessarily feel pressure but that's because I think everyone just kind of surveyed me and they're like okay she's she's back at work Grayson's hair is combed he's dressed she's good um and I think that's also part of what led to the lack of outreach is because instead of asking they just kind of surveyed safely from a distance and established she's okay yeah um and I don't think what people understand is just because I'm at work, just because I'm functioning doesn't mean that I'm healed. It doesn't mean that I'm better. In fact, I'm still, you know, I'm crying on the way to work every morning, you know, and you dust yourself off and you go to work. And then occasionally in the beginning, there's like a break in the bathroom where you're also crying and then you're coming back out. And then at the end of the day, you're, you're getting in your car and you're crying on the way home too, but people don't see that. So you table it. When did you start to feel like things were going to be okay? You were going to be okay. Life was going to be okay. I can speak to that. Um, So after the initial few months of like shock and trauma, uh, I started going to support group um, for lost um, parents and really started to feel like I was processing what had happened and and healing a little bit. Um, And for me... I don't know, maybe because he was born in the winter and then it was spring Mm -hmm. just with the warm weather and um, just, I just started to kind of have a shift. I found this quote um, about anchors and I had been decorating Henry's room with anchors and I had bought this anchor pillow and he had a bunch of anchor clothes and I just decided that the anchor would be kind of our symbol for him. And I got a tattoo and... Uh, just really made a decision to start living for him mm-hmm. and celebrating him. And I I just realized that, you know, grief is is different for everyone and everyone has a right to, to all, take all the time they need to grieve. But um, I realized I could either like swim in that sort of depression and waste the precious time I have here um, or I could start to look to the light again and start to make the most of my life for him and, you know, live, live for him and make him proud. And, um, that was a very slow, you know, thing over the course of many, many months. Um, but the, that lost group and going to an amazing healing yoga retreat with 25 other women who had experienced loss, um, was, was so, so life-changing. 
that was the beginning of me feeling whole again. And I still, you know, we still celebrate Henry, um, you know, on his birthday, on Mother's Day, on all the holidays and carry carry him with me always. And to this day, it means so much when people say his name and acknowledge him. Um, so they never, you never healed. You're never over anything. Um, you just learn to live in a new way and kind of turn something so awful and so sad into um, something that, you know, lifts you up and, and makes your life better. Yeah, I'd say pretty early on, I realized that while I didn't have a choice in losing him, that I had a choice in what I got to do afterwards. And um, sitting and being mad or jealous of everyone else who had a baby or didn't have to go through that pain wasn't serving me and it wasn't serving or honoring Teddy in any way. And that the best way that I could honor him and remember him was was to live life full and for him and um, to choose to make that conscious choice to step out into the light, out of the darkness, because... I didn't have control over the situation, but I did have control over how I moved forward. And while I was pregnant with him, I just always had this feeling of I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Like, this is my journey. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I didn't know at that point in time what was coming. But I remember losing him and the pain and saying, this is going to hurt right now. But there's going to be an after, like Mm -hmm. just kind of inherently knowing that it was a storm and I just, I had to go through it. There was no way around it. And I just, I had, I had to venture straight in. For me, I think um, around six months was the turning point. Um, Definitely, you know, I had read in uh, books about grief and particularly about losing a baby that around the four to six month mark is um, the worst time for many people. And I definitely found that to be true in my experience. And I was glad I had read that because I would have worried that I was going backwards or something if I hadn't known that that was normal. Um, But I remember around the six month mark was when I finally uh, was spending fewer days per week having these long crying sessions um, than than not. Um, And... I think the thing that helped me the most along the way was connecting with other lost moms. Um, And I did that, you know, through an in-person group. I found some of my best friends there also online. You know, I never thought I'd be a person who said I have an internet friend, but I have a wonderful (laughs) internet friend who I actually met up with a couple years later when I was visiting Chicago. And, um, you know, she was another lost mom who had seen me comment on a blog and she was just like, I just felt compelled to reach out to you. And she was a couple years ahead of me and she was just an amazing resource. Um, in the last five years, it's really sprung up. There's a huge lost community online. You can find, connect with so many people and people are really open about their grief. It's really helpful. And, you know, that's something I'm more involved in, in now and in helping to kind of uh, lead other people. Um, and, um, I just found that, you know, for such a long time, I thought that this ruined my life. I thought that I would forever be the lady with the dead baby and that um, any other part of me was gone. And, and in many ways, that is true. I mean, I'm, I am the person that I was when I was pregnant with Alana um, is not here anymore. And she died uh, the same day that my daughter did. Um, but the, the person that replaced her, it took, it took a while um, to come out. I mean, honestly, I don't feel that I was back to my full um, mental functioning until two, three 
four years after. I mean, the, the grief and the trauma, it just it really takes a toll. Um, but, but the person that I've become since then is just um, worlds away from who I was before. And, you know, I always thought that my daughter's birthday would be this um, somber, just painful day. And, and now, um, now I'm just so, I'm so grateful when her birthday comes around every year, I just think of her and I smile and I think of all of the good that she's brought to my life and the, the amazing people I have met because of her and just um, how much good I have been able to bring into the world in her name. It just eclipses anything I ever did before. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm so grateful to have had her and I, and at one point in time, I couldn't imagine ever ever saying those words or ever wanting anything more than a chance to just turn back the clock. Um, and it's, it's really, it's really a humbling experience. I think one of the hardest parts about grief and about this type of grief in particular is just that it's so isolating. I walked out of the hospital feeling like I was the only person in the world that this has happened to, you know, um, the more I talk about it, the more I learn that I have known people all along who have been touched by this. Um, but they never said anything because no one wants to talk about this. You know, stillbirth happens in one in 160 pregnancies in the mm-hmm. United States. One in, that's one in 160 pregnancies. That's 70 babies a day, 24,000 a year. It actually claims more children's lives. This is for CDC data, children up to 14 years of age, um, than uh, prematurity, SIDS, car accidents, drowning, flu, cancer, gun violence, poison, fire, and listeria combined. What? I read that stat and I'm like, where are all the women? Where are all the women? Where are all the women? Most of us are suffering in silence. You know, very, very few of us still, um, still speak out and it's, and it's because no one wants to think that this could happen to them. And, um, so I think the whole thing about community, which is so powerful, uh, is when you, when you walk to that hospital without your baby and you feel like, this is, you're the only person this has ever happened to, you know, to find that there are other people out there who, who not only have been through this, but have survived it, who have found joy again, um, and who've come out the other side. I mean, it's, it's a really powerful thing because you're, you're just staring into this abyss, um, and you don't know how, how you're going to claw your way back out from the bottom of it. What's the best thing some people could consider doing for that woman? Cause we heard all the things that were not so helpful. I think your friend who just called you every day, regardless of whether you talk to them or not, just showing up every day. And what I love the most is just a text, I'm thinking of you today. I love you. I'm thinking of you and Teddy. Just, you weren't asking questions. You weren't prying. You weren't asking anything of me. You were just letting me know, I'm thinking of you, which means you're recognizing my pain. So let me ask you something, because... If I were that friend, I have my own insecurities around doing that. So help help address mm-hmm. those. One is, what if, again, back to what you said earlier, what if she's having a good day? So what do you say to the woman who has that fear? And when you, Samantha, mentioned the friend who called every day and there were days you didn't pick up, I could feel an insecurity in me bubble up thinking, oh, gosh, I'm bothering her. And she's mm-hmm. thinking, let me move on with my life already. She wants can me you, to get the hint. Can you? <laughs> that's right. Can you please address that? Because yeah. I believe you when you say those things are helpful. But can you speak to the insecurities of the people on the other end? Yeah. Well, I think I think the first thing to recognize is if you think that the lost mom in your life is ever thinking about anything other than her baby, 
you don't understand what's going on in her head because yeah. it is the only thing we are ever, ever thinking of, even on a good day, yeah. even in a room full of other people. That is the number one you thought. You can't remind her that she mm-hmm. lost her baby. Yeah, You, you can't all, set her back. All you you're doing is reminding mm-hmm. her that you know her baby lived. Mm-hmm. And, and that you love that her. That is a gift. That and is a gift. if we're having a good day and you make us cry, it's just part of the process. Like, I never, even if someone said something and I ended up crying, I don't mm-hmm. ever remember wishing that that person no. hadn't talked to me or reached out. Yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, even the... Even the people, the well-meaning people who said the wrong thing um, might have been hurtful in the moment, but those people were were long forgiven. It's the people who said nothing, mm-hmm. yeah. who to this day, I can recite you a list, mm-hmm. sure. and I don't want anything to do with those people ever again. You mm-hmm. know, the saying nothing is absolutely the most hurtful thing that you can do. And, you know, all you can do is be honest and say, I don't know what to say. Yeah. I'm just so sorry that this happened to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciated the people who said I'm angry that this happened to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm heartbroken. Like, um, kind of put voice to some of those emotions that early on when I was in shock, I didn't feel like I had a, had a right to yet. Um, you know, that was really helpful to me. Yeah. You don't even need to say the right words. You can just be the person there listening. And rather than asking people what you can do for them, just do something. Mm-hmm. Say, just drop off the food. Um, because when you're in the middle of grief and shock, you don't know what you need help with. Mm-hmm. Keep showing up because uh, a month after, you know, everyone else has moved on. Um, it's the people who keep showing up. It's really okay to not know what to say. Mm-hmm. I'm not turning to you to fix my grief. You can't fix my baby's death. You don't have to worry about fixing anything. Just show up. Just show you care. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always... Hear everyone and listen to yourself. I did a lot of gardening that spring. I have gardens and it really, like you said, we came out of the winter into the spring and something came to life. Like my baby didn't, but my garden came to life and I was weeding and pruning and it was just, it was just, it was so good to see something have life Mm. and just to move forward.